All right, what's up, everybody? So I decided uh, for episode six, I was going to do something a little bit different. You know, we've been focusing a lot on American music, and I wanted to go travel overseas and do something fun. So this is going to be a Roomba Flamenca episode. I'm going to start it off with Los Chunguitos with Ike Dolor. And, uh, Unfortunately, I don't have the uh, release here because this is just on a, you know, their 30 best songs album, but whatever. It's a great track, so let's run it. Sin decir adiós, hay que dolor, como él me abandonó, hay que dolor, y solo me veo, hay que dolor, 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 hay que dolor. Por más que me pregunto, no encuentro la razón, hay que dolor, para dejar más sin, hay que dolor, sin una aplicación, hay que dolor.
is right. It is the 420 Marijuana episode sponsored by Roots. Shout out to Salty Cultivation. Shout out to Captain Nemo Cannabis. Shout out to nobody else. <laughs> that was Bong Ripper with Hate Ashbury Part 4 off of their 2008 full length Hate Ashbury, named for the center of the Summer of Love. Don't worry though, this episode's not going to be all. Uh, bummer like miserable doom metal it's actually going to be a history lesson uh a history lesson of marijuana and music
geography. Uh, we always looked at pot as a sort of medicine, a cheap drunk, and with much better thoughts than one that's full of liquor. Um, so yeah, uh, that is the man himself on the plant itself. Um, and as far as influences go, yeah, Armstrong's goes beyond jazz, right? The bleh, improvisational style um, that he and other musicians of his time attributed to pot uh, kind of permanently changed the landscape of music. Uh, you know, obviously back in that era, it was just jazz, swing, and brass music um, uh, by making a solo improvisationalist uh, sort of the focal point of the music. But, uh, you know, this carried over to soloists in every genre of American popular music uh, thereafter, you know what I mean? So... He said, know him, know me. That's the direct quote. Um, you know, uh, with that, effectively, that's, you know, an architect of modern jazz, uh, acknowledging that without um, Armstrong's complex and unique style, uh, modern jazz as it would be, uh, couldn't possibly exist. Um, so, with all that being said, marijuana use was on the rise in the early 20s with these improvisational jazz soloists making music and causing an uproar in white communities.
Now, even though uh, back in these days marijuana was effectively exclusively known to musicians and, you know, the occasional person hanging out at jazz clubs who weren't musicians, um, because it was associated in, like, wild and crazy improvisational music and behavior and with black people and Hispanic people, uh, white authorities still saw a need to eradicate. And uh, as a result, they launched this massive racist press campaign, uh, which set an unseemly and dark precedent for anti-pod propaganda to come. Uh, you know, as you probably very well know, uh, even leading up to, or even as far as today, uh, mar- anti-marijuana propaganda has an oddly... Uh, or always has oddly racist overtones. Um, New Orleans would make pot illegal in 1923, uh, with the whole state following suit in 1927, making it among the first 15 states to do so. The legalization process required this racism uh, that I was talking about before, um, because cannabis had been sold by druggists as medicinal tinctures, candies, and even pure hash, uh, since the early 1800s. Um, but it was much, much easier to demonize, uh, you know, Negro jazz musicians smoking reefers uh, than whites taking medicine. Um, Armstrong actually told biographers shortly before his death in 1921 um, of a time he was jailed uh, after being ratted on by some dude for uh, smoking a joint in the parking lot of the Cotton Club. Uh, he, uh, he admitted that several movie stars had approached him saying they had heard of his arrest but thought Mary Warner was a woman uh, and that he was with a prostitute. Um, still, despite its lack of recognizability, uh, it was... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um... It's just ridiculous that they were like, oh, I thought it was a lady. It was that, you know, the, the point of that story is that it was so unrecognizable to non-musicians. Um, but still, the intolerance was getting him arrested and warranted some uh, clandestine nature. Um, however, with that, references to marijuana and music became uh, commonplace, uh, you know, with titles such as T for Two, uh, Lotus Blossom, and, you know, more obvious ones like Smoking Reefers, many of which have been reissued on compilations like Reefer Songs or Viper Mad Blues. Hey, cats. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. I just left the V-Disc Studios. Here we are in Harlem. Everybody's here but the police, and they'll be here any minute. It's high time, so catch the song. Here it is. Say, I dreamed about a reef of five feet long. A mighty mess, but not too strong. You'll be high, but not for long. If you're a viper. The king of everything. I got to go, got to go, got to go, got to be high before I swing. Let the bells ring, ding dong ding. If you're a viper, say you know you're high, 
when your throat gets dry mm, everything's dandy ah yes you run down to the candy store bust your conk on peppermint candy then you know your little brown body's scent you don't give a darn if you don't well, this is fats waller if you're a Viper from 1938, a Viper became the term of the time for potheads and tokers. Uh, it was kind of like calling somebody a stoner nowadays uh, would be a Viper. Um, you know, picture it. A uh, snake hissing, uh, puffs of a joint. Um, you know, the musicians sort of embraced that term um, and used it to celebrate a new hero, the Weed Man. Uh, which brings us to the story of Milton Mez Mesro, uh, one of the self-proclaimed vipers who surrounded Satchmo, um, began to learn jazz and surrounded himself with black musicians, resolved to become a Negro. And yes, that is something he himself said. Um, soon, uh, he was playing Chicago speakeasies during the Roaring Twenties, and then moved to Harlem as Prohibition ended. Uh, while he couldn't exactly hack it with the talented Harlem musicians, he did find that his source of weed was better. Uh, his Mexican loco weed, as it was called, uh, would help him break into the culture. Uh, and soon his name would synonymous with the plant itself. If we wanted to go back to the beginning of the song that we're listening to right now, we could actually hear the term Mighty Mez, but not too strong, uh, in a reference to uh, the name Mezro, but also to the plant of which he was the provider. Um, Mez actually spoke on the effects of marijuana. Uh, This is a quote. Uh, The first thing I noticed was that I began to hear my saxophone as if it was in my head. Then I began to feel the vibrations of the reed much more pronounced against my lip. My head buzzed like a loudspeaker. I found that I was slurring much better, putting just the right feeling into my phrases. I was really coming on. All the notes came easing out of my horn like they'd already been made up, greased and stuffed into the bell, all without an ounce of effort. Well, I know that sounds good, but the government didn't think so. So they rallied against jazz musicians with former commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry J. Anslinger, chiefly responsible for prohibition in the United States, having said of why he went after musicians, the chiefest effect, as far as we were concerned, was that it lengthens the sense of time, and therefore they could get more grace beats into their music than if they simply followed the written copy. In other words, if you're a musician, you're going to play the thing the way it's printed. But if you're using marijuana, you're going to work in about twice as much music between the first note and the second note. That's what made jazz musicians. The idea that they could jazz things up, liven them up, you see. Um, So his hatred of marijuana and jazz music actually went hand in hand. Um, And even after he got it banned in 1937, uh, he marijuana, not jazz music, obviously. Uh, He continued to sort of instruct local agents that he had around the country to uh, act against jazz musicians and be ready to round them all up um, 
as part of like a Chaz uh, pogrom. Um, he did attempt to request uh, financial support uh, for that from Congress, and uh, that fell apart. Um, because uh, the news reached the public um, who love jazz, and thousands of people wrote letters. Um, oh, fun fact. Uh, before he was Malcolm X, Harlem Red, or Stagger Lee, uh, was a pot dealer who sold pre-rolls to uh, jazz musicians and was notorious for uh, having a penchant for fooling around with white women. So, nice. between straight and stoned was the strongest by all accounts was the 1960s. The prophet Bob Dylan, a man who sang garbled lyrics in a nasal whine that defied inter... (sighs) Bob Dylan, I'm sorry, I, I got carried away listening to this. Bob Dylan's music defied interpretation. Um, however, a couple tokes, his lyrics began to strike chords. Charles T. Tart noted that smoking creates an ability to understand things. Not clear when sober. An experience he called clearly relevant to understanding rock music. Um, Bob Dylan said it himself. Everybody must get stoned. Stone you when you're playing your guitar. Yes, but I would not feel so all alone.
Things really kicked off on August 28th of 1964 when Bob Dylan met the Beatles in their New York hotel room. And that doofus Ringo picked up one of Bob Dylan's preferred joints and smoked the entire thing, not understanding at all how things work. From that day forward, through what is almost universally hailed as the most creatively fertile period of any pop group in history, the Beatles lived in a cloud of smoke. According to Paul McCartney, all mentions of high or grass or smoke were calculated in the Beatles' music. By the summer of 1965, the height of Beatlemania and the release of Help, John Lennon said, We had gone beyond comprehension. We were smoking marijuana for breakfast. We were well into marijuana and nobody could communicate with us because we were just glazed eyes giggling all the time. He even claims they smoked weed in Buckingham Palace. This also launched a series of arrests and hassles with the law for John Paul and my and his friends which would continue into their adulthood. In 1972, Lester Grinspoon appeared as a witness on behalf of John Lennon and testified that the U.S. Attorney General had had conspired a plot to get John and Yoko Ono kicked out of the country on marijuana charges after they'd become involved in anti-Vietnam War activities. Uh, Grinspoon would later say that he told John um, how cannabis appeared to make it possible for him to hear his music for the first time in much the same way that when Ginsburg, or that Allen Ginsberg had seen Cezanne for the first time when he purposely smoked cannabis before setting out for the Museum of Modern Art to determine, with the help of marijuana, would break through his incapacity to relate to Cezanne. Uh, John was quick to reply that he had experienced only one facet of what marijuana could do for music and that he thought it did wonders for composing and making music as well as listening to it. Must be the 
1966. Donovan was uh, another musician beginning to feel the, uh, the effects of the conservative push against weed um, in the 1960s. Well, you might be wondering why I skipped from like 1930 to 1960. It's because there's just a lot of blues and it's. It's the same story for a lot of this, you know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of smoking weed, a lot of improvisational music that leads to new genres. So now I'm talking about rock and roll. Um, anyway, uh, you know, across the pond, um, Donovan was receiving fines and press scrutiny for his marijuana use um, because he was perceived as a threat to decent society. Um I think it had a little bit to do with, like, decadence back then, you know, and sin. Uh, I think, actually, he was literally called decadent by the Daily Mail. Um, anyway, all this culminated in a police raid on Redlands, Keith Richards' West Sussex home, uh, in February of 1967, based on a tip from News of the World. Um... Apparently, a small stoned gathering was in progress uh, that included a nude 20-year-old Marianne Faithful draped in a fur rug and allegedly heavily stoned. Uh, a judge instructed the jury to disregard her testimony that she had not been smoking uh, and levied a sentence of one year in prison plus costs for allowing his house to be used as a venue for the consumption of what was legally called Indian hemp. Um, wow, that's ridiculous. Keith Richards, I forgot to write his name. Um, Keith Richards is the one who got the one-year sentence. Uh, Mick Jagger also got three months for possession of legally purchased pet pills. Um, now, the circumstances of these charges were sketchy. Uh, but they pointed to a new emerging issue, which is a conservative movement against rock and against weed. Um, all of this prompted a 1967 ad in the Times, declaring that the law against marijuana is immoral in principle and unworkable in practice. It was signed by over 60 luminaries at the time, including Jonathan Aitken, Tariq Ali, David Dimbleby, Herbert Kreitzmer, George Melly and all four Beatles. The ad was placed by Soma, named for Aldous Huxley's Euphoria in a Brave New World, and cited medical opinion that cannabis is innocuous. It also quoted Spinoza in that all laws which can be violated without doing anyone any injury are left at, and proposed a five-point plan to repeal cannabis prohibition. At this time... Most people still hadn't tried cannabis. However, it was intrinsically intertwined with rock music. This is Blue Cheer with Magnolia, Caboose, Babyfinger, and Babylon.
Now, Blue Cheer, uh, we did go over in our Doom Metal episode. They are widely hailed as one of the first stoner rock bands, if not the first. Um, and as I was saying before, uh, as marijuana became intrinsically intertwined with rock music, with this became, became the advent of stoner rock. With bands like Blue Cheer pulling influence from these psychedelic properties of the plant, as you can hear in their heavily Hendrix and acid-inspired sound. scene as it related to rock sort of became this weird exclusive and esoteric club uh, that valued wealth and love and peace and chemically enhanced consciousness rather than wealth and possessions. Uh, This was being proselytized by the likes of Timothy Leary, uh, the American acid guru. Uh, But this music hitting the mainstream would soon change all of that. Uh, The Summer of Love in 1967 and the period it brought about the hippie movement that so many of our parents participated in, brought cannabis use to the forefront of white, young America in Haight-Ashbury District, where flower power was first documented in The Happenings, chronicled by Tom Wolfe in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Um, Here, LSD provided the inspiration for free-form open events music festivals at which groups performed lengthy improvisations before back projections of swirling colors, while audiences would look around wildly or loon around wildly. However, 
As Harry Shapiro said, LSD was the icing on the cake, and marijuana was its basic ingredient. During the hippie era, which was formally started at the Monterey Festival in June of 1967 and abruptly ended at Altamont in, ni- in December of 1969, smoking weed ceased to be a minority activity. generation, smoking weed was a defiant quasi-political act indicative of dissatisfaction with conventional values and an identification with the hippie movement. It was also a great way to scare the shit out of your parents. For hippies, the sharing of a joint was a ritualistic way of affirming communality of purpose. This is apparent in the improvisational music put out by groups associated with the movement, both then and now. The influences of marijuana and rock music branched out beyond the stars of the hippie movement and Woodstock, like Jimi Hendrix, and bands such as Country Joe and the Fish, but more about that later.
right, so that was Country Joe and the Fish, Eastern Jam from 1969. Now, as I was saying, the influence of marijuana and rock music did branch out beyond these hippie movement stars to lesser-known musicians of the era, such as Sly Stone. This is Sly and the Family Stone with Chicken off of the album Life, released in 1968. You're a chicken, you're a chicken. But you heard about me. To set you free Don't let a stranger say your story Now Sly Stone was another breakout star from Woodstock But not so much as breakout as Jimi Hendrix That being said, he is one of the pioneers of funk And it's key, one of its key innovators as you can clearly tell from this funky, funky jam, released in 1968. Can't you tell I'm in your corner? Don't you know I'm good for you, you? We'd be too much together. Don't be a I am here to set you free Stone were innovators of funk does not mean they were flying the funk flag the highest. As we all know, the ones who were doing that were Parliament. Now this is Parliament Unfunky UFO. <laughs> Smile is alright, girl. Oh, but then like a sick of 
had coined their own term for their music in 1975 called P-Funk. Simply put, P-Funk is the purest form of funk. Uh, it represents a state of mind, an alternate reality, and if that eludes you, you're probably not high enough. George Clinton, frontman and founder, actually used his music to create his own universe over a series of albums, such as Chocolate City, the titular tr track of which tells of an alternate government, with Muhammad Ali as president, Aretha Franklin as first lady, and stoner legend Stevie Wonder as secretary of fine art. I'm too high, I'm too high. 
a girl in a dream She sees a four-eyed cartoon monster on a TV screen She takes another puff and says it's a crazy scene That red is green She's a tangerine You know, it's said that his introduction to pot by his fellow musicians on the Motown Review is what actually led him to drop the name Little Stevie and start writing more pot-influenced music. Um, She's a girl in her life But her world's a superficial paradise She had a chance to make it big more than once or twice But no dice She wasn't there in Do, do, do. 
revolution. You know, ironically, there's a couple of songs that are like in the four minute and twenty second range on this playlist, but specifically this one is four minutes and twenty seconds long. Nice. Anyway, this is The Wailers, Bob Marley and The Wailers, with Revolution, released in 1974. Uh, On the Caribbean island nation of Jamaica, a local pop sensation was emerging. A vocal trio known as The Wailers, comprised of Neville Livingston, Peter McIntosh, and Robert Nesta Marley, teamed up with Curly and Aston Barrett. Their lilting, crude reggae coupled with Bob Marley's beautiful melodies and passionate lyrics and the Wailers' perfect harmonies would be genre-defining. They would also be the first musicians to overtly adopt the teachings of Rastafarianism, a religious cult that grew up in the Kingston slums from the teachings of activist Marcus Garvey to become the spiritual nationality of the island as well as its most compelling cultural force. Their beliefs are complex and not easy to summarize but a crucial tenet of their belief system is a reverence for marijuana as the sacramental herb. It is the healing of nations. Ironically, while integral to ancient African healing ceremonies, marijuana is not thought to have arrived in Jamaica until around the time slavery was abolished and slaves replaced with cheap Indian labor. Making its connection to the freed slave religion an obvious one. The term ganja even translates from this. It is based on an Indian word meaning sweet-smelling or noisy, both of which apply. You could even say that's where loud comes from. Even more stony was the emergence of dub, in which producers just down-tuned and effectively chopped and screwed and drank it. believe that is uh i don't believe peter tosh and uh god what is his name uh neville livingston i don't believe they are in that song i believe that's when they were replaced by uh the female whalers but i would be remiss if i did not play this next song from 1968 this is peter mcintosh better known as peter tosh with the defining magnum opus of marijuana music legalize it 
even Elvis. Uh, his less compromising ex-bandmate Peter Tosh would go on to record what is arguably one of the most influential marijuana songs ever. Um, legalize it. He would say about the song, uh, Herb is for the ills of man. It's the healing of nations. But in Jamaica, a man can go to prison for one seed. It might as well be one ton. This was activism for the plant, just as we saw in the States and the United Kingdom. That's the best thing you can do. Size it. 
Is Jamaican pop music relevant to American pop music? Well, in order to figure that out, we have to figure out why Eric Clapton covered I Shot the Sheriff in 1973. I shot the sheriff, but I did not shoot the dead. I shot the sheriff. international interest and in 1973 Eric Clapton released a cover of I Shot the Sheriff by Bob Marley on 461 Ocean Boulevard the voices of the 60s were gone and reggae was being introduced to a worldwide audience Janis Joplin was dead Pigpen was dying and the Grateful Dead sounded mournful without his influence Throughout the early half of the 70s, bland boogie bands like the Doobie Brothers dominated the airwaves. References to marijuana became more mm, obvious in music. Steve Miller's entire band had been busted and deported from England in 1968 for weed. In 1973, they released The Joker with the famous line, I'm a Joker, I'm a smoker. Midnight Toker. As you can see, things were getting a bit more boring. Another market tendency was for progressive musicians to produce more ambitious LPs, moving away from the three-minute pop single format. Albums like Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield and The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd ruled the airways. Freedom came my way one day And I started out down there All of a sudden I see Sheriff John Brown Aiming to shoot me down So I shot, I shot him down
So as I said before, moving away from the three-minute pop single format, albums like Tubular Bells and The Dark Side of the Moon were ruling the airways. Dark Side of the Moon was a sort of a concept album, loosely exploring the pressures of being a high-earning star in the field of pop music. With a disdain for the conventional strategies of the music business. Uh, The records, like all concept albums, were designed to be listened to from front to back in one sitting, making them ideal soundtracks for pot-smoking sessions. So this, from 1973, is Time and the Great Gig in the Sky by Pink Floyd off of Dark Side of the Moon.
also took the hardest drugs. The group became widely condemned as they were recognized as the origins for heavy metal and arena rock. And we're seen as uh, the innovators of the nasty turn that music took with drugs after the 70s. So after this will be No Quarter by Led Zeppelin off of Houses of the Holy from 
freeform improvisations marijuana was said to have brought to jazz. We're making Waves in Rock and Roll again by jam pioneers the Grateful Dead, whose drug-fueled stupors produced some of the most complex and brain-meltingly progressive music to this day. While the Dead produced many classic studio recordings and are definitive hit makers, although, to be honest, not really for me, uh, their true talent really was in the live performance and the art of musical improvisation and copious drug use by members and fans alike. So this is The Eleven, live in San Francisco, 1969. The Grateful Dead record, Live Dead.
living along while this song is playing. In the mid-70s, an offshoot of rock music took a new stance on marijuana. Uh, punk saw old hippies and nostalgians as compliant people who had caved under capitalism. Their complacence with capitalism was blamed on marijuana. However, punks were not truly anti-pot. Instead, they were fiercely anti-hippie. Hippies were terminally uncool, always chilled out, smoking dope. While the punks would rather sniff glue to appear sharp and dangerous. Uh, in December of 1976, Sid Vicious said, Pot is not drugs. Pot is for dropouts. Only hippies like pot. However, once behind closed doors, punks always smoke pot. Barman at the Roxy, a seminal punk hangout, would sell ready-rolled spliffs to young punks who didn't know how to roll. Coming up next, after this Grateful Dead track is over, will be Police and Thieves by The Clash.
cover of Junior Marley's Police and Thieves not only showed the band's interest in reggae, but went on to influence Bob Marley's hit Punky Reggae Party. As the punk scene began to fade, Johnny Rotten was sent to Jamaica by his record label to find talent, where he was photographed sharing a bat spliff with Big Youth. No one stops it.
Now, as disco started to dominate the charts in the mid-70s, interest started to shift from marijuana to cocaine. And as punk started to rise to prominence, interest there started shifting from weed to meth and heroin. But cannabis still had influence in some music of the times. Songs like Rick James's Mary Jane, released in 1981, still provided obvious and strong references to marijuana. But even though there were outliers like Rick James, who still loved his cocaine, the drug of choice was cocaine. And in countries like Jamaica, marijuana was still popular in music, but the way it was referenced changed. Music followed or focused less on the healing and spiritual properties of marijuana and instead began to explore the criminal aspect of weed as a product of the drug trade. And as I mentioned before, this is Mary Jane by Rick James from 1981. Off of Come Get It. <laughs>
drugs came about. The 80s perception of weed was much different. All aspects of altruism associated with distributing was erased by harsh sentences and increased law enforcement powers focused on punishing all types of drug dealers. such high times has been a mainstay in marijuana culture in America since its inception. The cover story of its March 1992 edition was Cypress Hill's self-titled debut contains more marijuana references than a classic Peter Tosh on Bob Marley album. Cypress Hill's second album included a list of 19 things you might not have known about the history and uses of cannabis on the record's Gatefold Sleeve. In 1994, Cypress Hill's... Oh, sorry. Cypress Hill came full circle, becoming one of the main attractions for the 25th anniversary Woodstock Music Festival. However, with new attitudes towards weed... Stemming from the war on drugs, people began to worry the anniversary could never maintain anywhere near the atmosphere of the original. The current president, Bill Clinton, feverishly denied he had smoked cannabis in the 60s, claiming he did not inhale. However, concerns were unfounded, and 1994's Woodstock Festival ended much like the first, with fans smoking up in the rain and mud in front of the stage. Now this, from the album Cypress Hill, released in... Sorry. 1991. This is Stoned is the Way of the Walk by Cypress Hill. Snooker, bringing the beta, yeah, yeah. Down the funk's rising, got the beta bass. 
this crazy laser focus Can I make the hotties loco? I remember Sister Maggie Best what kind of saggy as the world entered the 90s, the stance on pot changed again, as groups like Guns N' Roses on the white side were advocating for legalization, and... Uh, hip-hop and R&B groups like Cypress Hill uh, were paving the way for an understanding of uh, marijuana's influence on uh, urban, inner-city, and poor, impoverished communities. We are the ones stolen in the ways of the masters. Stoned in the way of the Times also became a place for uh, musicians such as uh, Guns N' Roses, Sebastian Bach of Skid Row, Chris Barron of The Spin Doctor, David Abrazis of Pearl Jam to testify for their love of marijuana. Um, but again, this really only made marijuana accessible to white audiences. The influence of marijuana on urban communities was not lost, and obviously is not lost, we probably see in modern times uh, significantly more uh, references to marijuana in uh, what I think most people would refer to as urban music. Um, you know, um, all that started on the West Coast. Uh, you know, obviously... Um, Rappers were talking about getting blunted and smoking blunts and things like that for a very long time, but marijuana really being a central focal point of hip-hop music uh, became a, uh, a West Coast mainstay with the advent of G-Funk uh, in 1992 when Dr. Dre released his first solo album after leaving as the producer of N.W.A. Uh, Dre named this album The Chronic... Uh, coming to surprise those who remembered his lyrics from N.W.A.'s 1990 hit Express Yourself, where Dre claims weed is known to give a brother brain damage. Uh, he went on to team up with Snoop Dogg at Death Row Records, where together they developed a fresh subgenre of West Coast rap called G-Funk. And now G-Funk, to me, is synonymous with marijuana. When you listen to these since. These heavily synth-laden beats, uh, slow and steady and funky, uh, I think you'll see why marijuana sort of flows so easily with this music. So this is Nothing But A G Thing by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg off of 1991's The Chronic, and then Ain't No Fun If The Homies Can't Have None off of Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style from 1993, and that is featuring Corrupt, Warren G, and Nate Dogg. One, two... Bringing to the folk, Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door. Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Compton and Long Beach together, now you know you in trouble. Ain't nothing but a G thing, baby. Too low depth, niggas so we're crazy. Death Row is the label that pays, man. Unfade 
syllable, so please don't try to fake this. But uh, back to the lecture at hand. Perfection is perfected, so I'ma let them understand from a young G's perspective. And before me digger the bitch, I have to find a contraceptive. You never know, she could be earning her man and learning her man. And at the same time, burning her man. Now you know I ain't with that shit, Lieutenant. Ain't no pussy good enough to get burned while I'm offended. And that's realer than real deal, holy feel. And now you hookers and hoes know how I feel. Well, if it's good enough to get broke off a proper chunk, I take a small piece of some of that funky stuff. It's like this and like that and like this, Santa. It's like that and like this and like that, Anna. It's like this and like that and like this, Santa. Drake creep to the mic like a fan. Well, I'm peeping and I'm creeping and I'm creeping. But I damn near got caught, cause my beeper kept beeping. Now it's time for me to make my impression felt. So sit back, relax, and strap on your seatbelt. You've never been on a ride like this before. With a producer who can rap and control the maestro. At the same time, with the dope rhyme that I kick, you know and I know I flow some old funky shit. To add to my collection, the selection symbolizes dope. Take a tote, but don't choke. If you do, you have no clue of what me and my homie Snoop Dogg came to do. It's like this and like that and like this. It's like that and like this and like that and it's like this And who gives a fuck about those? So just chill to the next episode What a hell of a gangster lean Getting funky on the mic like an old batch of collard greens It's the capital S-O-S, I'm fresh and double O-P D-O-double-G-Y-D-O-double-G, you see Showing much flex when it's time to wreck a mic Pimping hoes and clocking a grip like my name was Dolomite Yeah, and it don't quit I think they in the mood for some motherfucking G hell shit yeah. So Drake, what up, dog? Gotta get them what they want What's that, G? We gotta break them off something Hell yeah And it's gotta be bumping City of Compton Place, so I gnash your attention Mobbing like a motherfucker, but I ain't lynching Dropping the funky shit that's making a sucker niggas mumble When I'm on the mic, it's like a cookie, they all crumble Try to get close, and your ass, I get smacked My motherfucking homie, doggy dog, has got my back Never let me slip, cause if I slip, then I'm slipping But if I got my Nina, then you know I'm straight tripping And I'ma continue to put the rap down, put the Mac down And if your bitches talk shit, I have to put the smack down Yeah, and you don't stop I told you I'm just like a clock when I tick and I talk, but I'm never off, always on till the break of dawn. See you when PTO in and the city they call Long Beach. Putting the shit together like my nigga DOC. No one can do it better like this, that, and this, and uh, it's like that, and like this, and like that, and uh, it's like this. Then who gives a fuck about those? So just chill till the next episode. the jack off hour this is dj easy dick on the balls right now something new by snoop doggy dog and this one goes out to the ladies from all the guys a big bow wow wow because we're gonna make it a little mystery here tonight this is dj easy dick on the station that slaps you across your fat ass with a fat dick when i met you last night baby before you open up your gap 
I had a respect for your lady But now I take it all back Cause you gave me all your pussy And you even licked my balls Leave your number on the cabinet And I promise baby I'll give you a call Next time I'm feeling kinda hungry You can come on over and I'll break you off And if you can't fuck that day baby Just lay back and open your mouth Well, if corrupt gave a fuck about a bitch, I'd always be broke. I never have no motherfucking endo to smoke. I get smoked and loony. Bitch, you can't do me. Do we look like BBD? You hoochie groupie. I have no love for hoes. That's something that I learned in the pound. So how the fuck am I supposed to pay this hoe? Just the latest hoe. I know the pussy's mine. I'ma fuck a couple more times. And then I'm through with it. There's nothing else to do with it. Pass it to the homie. Now you hit it. Cause she ain't nothing but a bitch to me. And y'all know that bitches ain't shit to me. I give a fuck. Why don't y'all pay attention? Approach her with a different proposition. I'm corrupt. Oh, you'll never be my only one. Trick ass bitch. In the motherfucking house with a fat dick for your motherfucking mouth. Hold recognize, niggas do too. Cause when bitches get scandalous and pull a voodoo, what you gon' do? You really don't know. So I'd advise you not to trust that hoe. Silly of me to fall in love with a bitch. Knowing damn well I'm too caught up with my grip. Now as the sun rotates and my game grows bigger. How many bitches wanna fuck this nigga named Snoop? Doggy, I'm all the above. I'm too swift on my toes to get caught up with you hoes. But see, it ain't no fun if my homies can't get a taste of it. Cause you know I don't love it. Woo! Hey, now you know. Inhale, exhale with my flow. One for the money. For the bitches, three to get ready and four to hit the switches in my Chevy. Six for red to be exact, with bitches on my side and bitches on my back. So back up, bitch, because I'm struggling. Just get on your knees and then start juggling these motherfucking nuts in your mouth. It's me, Warren G, the nigga with the clout. synths, those sort of slow, droning beats, and the lyrics very much about um, 
you know, just, uh, you know, inner city activity, but um, at the same time, sort of very party lyrics and uh, good time stuff. Um, that's it for the history lesson. Uh, I'm going to come back in the middle of the episode with a review, some product reviews, um, and then uh, return with the present of marijuana and music in the second half of the episode. Thank you.